Amen. Can I get an amen? amen. Okay. All right. Well, good to uh, be with you guys. If uh, you have a Bible, go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Burden kids, you guys can head out back. If you're new, visiting, first time uh, with us, just thrill- thrilled that you're here, thrilled that you're here to gather with us. And uh, uh, we love to worship, and we love to worship um, the God who we believe uh, is revealed to us through creation, through the person of his son Jesus, and also through his written revelation to us, which is the scriptures, the 66 books of the Bible that we love to read and study and preach and think about and learn from, because we do believe there is one, only one place where hope can be found, where sins can be forgiven, where uh, meaning can be established, and that is only in the God who reigns and rules over this world and reigns and rules in and through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're happy to be together. We don't come because we have to be here, but because we long to be here, because we want to celebrate and enjoy and be reminded of the truths that are ours in Jesus Christ. And so um, if you're wondering... um, why this place is happening, that is why. And so we worship him fully as we sing to him. We talk about things that he has done uh, for us and for God. We also uh, read the scriptures. We learn more about what God has done in the person work of his son. We also give as an act of worship because God gave generously in Jesus. We give on those silver boxes in the back. And um, we also love to pray together and take the Lord's Supper together to be reminded and nourished of the saving benefits of Jesus Christ um, in all that he did. And so uh, joy to together with us. I'm just, in case you're wondering, I know so many weeks I'm in the hallway and I meet somebody and you're either new to Christianity or you're new to this place. So let me just give you a a quick rundown of your Bible. You have 66 books that we love to teach that we just spent two years in the Gospel of Luke. Gospels are books that actually talk about the life and teachings of Jesus. They're these accounts that lay before us who Jesus was and what he did ultimately to ransom his own life for the lives of sinful men and women to be reconciled to a perfectly holy God who dwells in infinite perfections. And so we we looked at the Gospels. There's also letters in there, which are letters after Jesus ascended to heaven, after his resurrection. They're letters that are given to the church, to us, to know, hey, uh, what does all this mean for us? How do we live? How do we operate? How do we order? How do we function as the bride that was bought by Jesus' blood? Then you have um, in the Old Testament, kind of the first five books known as the Torah, or the law goes from God's creation into the law that he gave. He didn't give the law primarily so you keep it, but so you see you couldn't keep it and need somebody who could. Then he sent prophets to declare, hey, that person who's coming to keep that law that you couldn't keep is Jesus Christ. He'll be the perfect redeemer, the perfect Messiah. He'll live a perfectly obedient life on your, in your place, for your stead, die for your sin, and rise as your substitute. It is glorious news the Bible teaches of. And as you get through all these different books, there's um, what's known as wisdom literature. And wisdom literature um, is not always prescriptive, but more descriptive for for us, excuse me, and you have kind of five books that fit that category of Psalms. Uh, even if you're not a Christian, you probably know what Psalms are because you see it on mugs and table mats and people's walls in their houses all the time who uh, say they're Christians, right? Those are just really uh, God's hymnal to us, more to be sung than read. You have Proverbs, which talks about um, how do we actually walk with our time, talents, and treasures in a way that honors God and is used for God and His glory. Uh, you have Job, a, a very long book that deals with the problem of evil and pain and suffering and the sovereignty and good ruling of God. And then you have the book Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is a book that might bother you a little bit because um, it's basically a wealthy man. We believe it was Solomon who ruled as David's son, King David's son. He had all there is that could ever be had. He had more wisdom than could ever be gained under the sun. He accomplished more, did more, had more than anyone would ever dream of having. He makes Bill Gates look like a peasant, okay? So he is, he is deeply wealthy, deeply wise, and he realizes at the end of it all that really there is meaninglessness under the sun if there is no God who resides over the sun and is in and working through all of it. So um, if you don't come from anywhere and you're not headed to anywhere, then your life here is totally totally and utterly meaningless. It's vanity. There's no point in you doing really anything if you can't make a lasting dent in any way, shape, or form. And he takes on the roles of these different people. He takes on the secularist that says, hey, uh, this is all there is here and now. He takes on the Christian who says, hey, this is what God does. This is what God will do. He takes on the hedonist who's just after pure pleasure and joy. He takes on the humanist who says, hey, uh, let's just try to work this thing out in some way, shape, or form. He takes on the existentialist who says, hey, I know the world's senseless, but I'll just defy it anyways by just aggressively railing against it and uh, just trying to be good, trying to achieve some things. But in the end, his thesis, he will say, is totally irrefutable. 
that if God does not exist, if this is all the life that you know, if this is all the nature that you know, if this is all the season that you know, and there is no heaven, no creator, no life after death, then this is totally futile. And he's been laying it before us over and over and over and over and over again. And here we get to one of the most popular chapters, uh, probably uh, known to many, even if you're not in Christian circles, uh, Ecclesiastes 3. And Ecclesiastes 3 um, is uh, really, here's the the interesting thing about this as I was um, even reading it is because because Solomon's desire is to get you to basically ask questions, right? He wants to push you to get to know the truth. He doesn't always lay it before you. He just asks you things to get your heart to, to well up to that place. Um, you get to places like this, and if you miss his method, you'll totally miss his message. Because otherwise, what we do is we read Ecclesiastes 3, right? There's a time and season for everything. And what we do is we take Ecclesiastes 3, and we start looking at it as prescriptive. So we say, see, the Bible says there's a time for everything. So I can hate when I want to hate, and then I'll love when I want to love. And then there's a time to kill, and then we can go to war because there's a time for war, time for peace. And we kind of may, now, we don't have time to get into um, where the Bible does speak to those things. But this is not a list of things telling you, hey, um, in every different season, you have a win to do this or do this or not do this. Um, He's doing something much deeper. He's trying to push you to see the history of madness in life that occurs under the sun. And if there is not a God working in and through all of those seasons for your ultimate good and his glory, then it's meaningless. And so here Solomon is going to roll out for us in right context and right understanding what these seasons are like. And I think all of us as we go through this are going to go, yep, I've experienced that one. I've experienced that one. Verse 1, here's what Solomon says. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. If we're not careful, we're just going to grab this list and, and walk around with it and go, oh, cool, I'm free to hate you today because the Bible says there's a time and season for everything. Or, right, it's always right and good to go to war because there's always a time for war and a time for peace. Or, hey, I don't have to say anything to you because there's always a time for silence and not a time to speak. So here's what he's, he's basically doing here. Solomon is, is rolling out for you and laying before you simply to describe all the things that he's encountered in his life, the, the changes of seasons, the door hinges that happen in the natural realities of life that are all governed under a God who rules and reigns over them, which we're going to see ultimately in the end and why that's good for us. And as he does this, he shows us that life under the sun is filled with seasons, right? We all have rhythms that we live in. Now, no one's going to not acknowledge this, but it doesn't matter where you fall in the philosophical spectrum, you will admit that all of these things happen, and if you live long enough, you'll realize that they occur in and out of human history. Life in its entirety is always changing, is it not? always shifting. Um, You go one minute, right? You probably think of moments that have radically changed. You went from total joy and elation to total despair and heart-wrenching agony. Uh, You went to a wedding where you were celebrating and singing and and, and worshiping to talking with them about them wanting to file their divorce papers. Um, You were in the hospital, either yourself or with others, where you saw the amazing creativity and beauty of God and giving life, and the next day you were at a funeral seeing the passing of a life. Um, Life has a funny way of working itself out, right, where you see these times and seasons and changes all the time. And if you live long enough, what Solomon's basically getting at is it's never a straight line, right? If you live long enough, you realize the pangs of life, the, the pains of life, the rhythms of life that aren't always beautiful. They're not always happy. They're not always cheery. Life is always catching you off guard. Life is always kind of blindsiding you with a left hook, Right? And here he's just showing us that, man, these things are always happening. Chapter 3 is all about just human history and the madness of the cycle if there's not a God involved in it. Right? It's madness if these things just happen and we're left to go, ah, well, this is all kind of weird. 
I mean, life comes, life goes, people die, people are given life, there's wars, there's peace, there's love, there's hate. And we see all of these seasons and we struggle to cope with them, do we not? So we walk in all these seasons, we walk in all these realities, and we struggle to cope with these seasons that happen. And so that's why I said he's getting back to this crooked, can't-be-made-straight idea that, man, I see the unhappy business given to man, that I just, I walk and I live, and it's just this thing that I can't walk in a straight line. It's always shifting. It's always changing. There's always burden in me. There's always wonder in me, and nothing lines up for us. Every time you hit a beautiful moment, a dark one enters. I know sitting with many of you over the last number of years together, right? Three, four years together. Especially if you've been with us since day one. We were in that little house to the hotel. I mean, we've walked through some undescribable pain and undescribable joy together where we've seen life and beauty and we've seen loss and tragedy. We've seen great love and great hatred. And as he explains all these things, he shows, man, these are times that we experience. There are times your loved ones are running towards you to embrace you, and times they want nothing to do with you, and they run away from your embrace, right? There are times where maybe in your life, literally and proverbially, you experience total peace, and then literally and proverbially, the next minute, you experience war and turmoil in your soul. So he's just showing us, hey, th- these things all happen. One minute your, your heart goes from love for someone to hatred for someone. Going, How did that happen? What do I do with that? And so here's what he's going to do. He's going to take all of these things, all these seasons, he's going to use this as his building block, right? And we'll see this here in verse 9 and on. He says this, so what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Solomon's going, okay, what's the point of experiencing all these seasons? What's the point of experiencing life and experiencing death and experiencing tragedy, experiencing hatred and love and experiencing times to be quiet and speak up? And what's the point of all? What's the point getting up and going to work in the morning if I'm just going to still see it in my office? If all of this is crooked and can't be made straight, if life under the sun is all that there is, then what is the meaning of my existence? Solomon's going, man, Why do any of this? I've seen how burdensome it is in the crookedness of the world that cannot be straightened out. He's reiterating the business of God, the unhappy business that he's given man to deal with. Um, This is why after sin in the garden, right, um, man falls, right, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They they disobey God. This is why God comes to the man. What does he say? He says right right out of the gate, hey, okay, the land underneath you that was to be your dominion so you could work well and it'd be easy, you could provide for your family, work's now going to be hard. It's going to be cursed, This is why when you wake up in the morning and you try to get to work, your alarm doesn't always go off right. This is why when you get into work, the the, the Wi-Fi is not always on. You go to print papers, the copier's broken. You get coffee spilled on your white t-shirt. Like, everything's not going right for you. It's broken, it's hard, it's cursed. Nothing's working the way that you thought. Traffic's worse than it was the day before. People are flipping you off. I used to think that was saying hi. Uh, I learned in New Jersey that's very different here, right? We, we, We live in this area, in this time, where nothing quite will always go right. There's never quite a straight line. Everything's off. Something's not all, all we made perfect. And here we see this amazing, amazing reality is God is showing us in this the frustration it is and the disobedience of man. And until we come to repentance and glad submission to God, will we not see how good he is and the perfection that he lives in. We will not appreciate the mess that he is straightening out in the work of his son. So you have to get to this place where you feel the burden, you feel the weight, you see the fracture, you see that everything around you is crooked and not quite straight. The seasons are always changing and shifting and never quite what you want them to be. Look, um, we'd all agree, if you read the list of verses one through eight, we're all wanting the first one and every bit of those lists to stay for our entire, entire life. Can we just live in the, in the peace? Sorry. That thing was driving me nuts. I'm sorry. It's just reality. Um, (laughs) Fracture right there, right? Cursed world right there with the fly. here's, here's, Here's what he's showing us is that we'd want all those things. We would want love indefinitely, right? We would want peace indefinitely. We would want no struggle indefinitely. We would want dancing indefinitely, laughing indefinitely. We would want healing indefinitely. 
We would want life being born indefinitely. We'd want all those things. But because of the fracture, we do not realize the mess that we cannot straighten out. And he says in verse 11, look at this. This is a beautiful text. And it's actually a little surprising if you've been following in Ecclesiastes. Because you might go, man, I, I expect Solomon to be a bit of a fatalist by now. But he's not. He's deeply hopeful and he's deeply optimistic. Look what he says in verse 11. He has made, this is God, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Solomon surprises us here. Does he not? I mean, if you're reading Ecclesiastes and you're following along, I mean, Pastor McKinney last week spoke about just the realities of death and the, the awful, tragic realities that are before us that we, none of us can escape the looming pangs of death that will take all of us, right? I mean, just this dark, glooming cloud. And here he says, weirdly, almost strangely, almost schizophrenically, in the middle of this, hey, um, God makes all things beautiful in its time. It's amazing. He has come to a place where he's grandpa's putting you on his lap going, hey, listen to all that I've learned. I've learned to trust over time that God's sovereign rule and reign over time and eternity is a thing of beauty. That the ways that God works tragedy in life for your good is a thing of beauty. He turns a corner and says there is profound meaning when you understand there's something behind all these realities, all these seasons that you experience under the sun. There's profound meaning when you realize none of it's random, that you don't go to work in vain, that you don't read a verse in vain, that you don't cry in vain, that you don't hug in vain, that you don't share the gospel in vain, that you do not do good in vain ever if it's tethered to the God of the universe and the work of his son, Jesus Christ that God will ultimately make all of those things beautiful in its time. That there is a God in your life who is working all of them in your life. Now, we all live in a perpetual state of why, do we not? Why do I live here? Why am I in this job? Why did this happen? Why do I have to endure this? Why are my kids like this? Why is my spouse acting this way? Why, 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 why? We live in a perpetual state of why. Do we not, why is the government like this? Why is the world like this? Why is Pastor Mike speaking like this, right? Like, we, we live in this perpetual state of just always asking why, 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 and Solomon knows this, and he says, in its time. That's so important. It's a time of waiting and trusting that God will make even the dark days beautiful in its time. The death the miscarriage, the betrayal, the hurt, the longings in its time, in his sovereign time. He will make it all beautiful. God uses everything for good mysteriously and majestically as he bends it all back to his beautiful will and good design. So this waiting is tough though, right? Amidst the seasons of change. God, what are you doing? God, what are you up to? God, I don't see you. I don't feel you. I feel abandoned by you. I feel left by you. Now, can I just uh, be clear? This in its time is not spirit fingers, okay? It's not plastic joy. This in its time is, is not this ethereal kind of I'm always happy with smiles, this time of waiting and trusting amidst the seasons of change under God's sovereign rule of reign is much deeper than that. It is, he is active even in this. It's in the deepest possible pain we say, I trust you, my heart is failing, help me. Like God, help me to just get through today in the seasons of change and the fractured life that I live trusting your sovereign care and the work of Christ because if this is all there is, I am doomed to failure every moment I walk out my front door. It's this welling up in your soul where, okay, this hurts, but he's in control of this, not me. It probably isn't smiley, but it's rejoicing. Why? In that moment, you're not without hope. 
You're not without hope at all. It's a state of your heart. The God of the universe never shows up late or out of control. You're going to see him affirm this as he continues on in Ecclesiastes, that this is a God who isn't the ambulance driver, that you get in an accident, he's showing up late going, oh, what's going on? No, he was there before it happened going, hey, I'm in this, I'm a part of this, I'm working in this, I'm the surgeon already active in fixing and mending what is good for you. I'm in control of this thing. And you have two options, to lean into me or lean away from me. And if you lean away from me, it's more futile. And if you lean into me, there's place of hope and resting and steadfast joy. It's this understanding that, God, you did not rescue me from all my sin to then destroy me again, but to uphold me and sustain me amidst the pain that I myself am experiencing from the consequences of sin, yet in your mercy and goodness will you uphold me. This is the Psalms. This is David. And here's what's amazing. All this is why, in some weird way, Solomon can say, and you're reading it on the screen, enjoy life. Some of you guys, your head just exploded. Right? Like, what do you mean enjoy life? You've been so depressed, so down and out. What do you mean that I can still enjoy life amidst all of these seasons? And he says this. He says, when you've got money, when you've got health, when your kids are obedient, when there's laughter, when there's joy, drink deeply of life and run in the fields of that joy and love what God has given. That's an act of mercy from God. And when life is hard and it doesn't seem like there's much money in the bank and when there is death right before you and there is pain and ache present before you and there are times and seasons that you walk in that are dark with despair, rejoice because God is sovereignly weaving together and sovereignly placing these things before us for our good and for his greatest glory in our joy. And as we walk in those things, we can realize even in the pain, even in the sorrow, God's in this and he's working through this that God historically has worked through awful tragedy to bring about the greatest good for his glory. It's this really weird thing that Solomon is beginning to push our hearts into, that God is so intimately involved in your design and where he's placed you and put you that you can say, yes, this is tearful and hard, but it's part of his love for me. You know, if you're a Christian, you know, if you're a son and daughter of the king, that every bit of what he does and places in your life is not punitive but formative, that it is not for punishment but for formation, that it's for godly discipline. We're going to get more into that in, in just a little bit, but Solomon is trying to get us there. He's asking these questions to get you to realize you can't explain. You can't have hope tied to anything. You can't have despair tied to anything. You can't have happiness tied to anything. If there isn't a God over the sun, if there isn't a Jesus Christ who came and lived and did what he did in his death and resurrection. And so he's trying to move our hearts there. So in this, Solomon is saying, man, he's shaping you. He knew the path of your life before you did. He's creator. You're not. You're the created Your vision's limited. That's why he's actually going to say, not yet, but he'll say, "Um, what can you do? What has been will always be. You know what that means? You're not God. (laughs) Like, this is God's stuff. This is eternal stuff. Like, we're here for this. God has always been. You know what we have to do? We have to get out of your minds that God knows the future and get into your minds that God is outside and already present in the future. That he is actually outside of time, reigning and ruling over it fully. It's not something he is waiting for, something he is anticipating. He already has it in his hands. That's profound. That we serve a God who's not confined by the clock. Or confined by our decisions, a God who's way outside of that, who is not anticipating or waiting on his toes, not a one-dimensional God, but a God who is in his infinite dimensions, ready, available, active, and purposeful in every last bit of what you face and walk through. Solomon's trying to show us that this brings about deep, profound meaning. There is no space that God is not there. Um, Think, I was thinking a lot about Philippians 4 as I was reading this week where he says, don't be anxious for anything, right? But, but with prayer and supplication, present your request to God and with thanksgiving. And then what happens? 
After you present your request to God, after you beg God, after you plead with God, if you ask God for clarity, for wisdom, then he says, hey, then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Okay, here's what's interesting. I don't know about you, but um, I, I pray for things. I ask God for things, and I worry more. Like, I'm more anxious. So there's something about that text that's not going right in here. There's something about what Solomon's saying that's not going right in here when I see him say this. Um, and I think I've shared this maybe once before, but it's, it's something that I, I consistently helps me, reminds me. But I don't know if you guys have ever done group projects before in school. And, and what, was, what was the worst person to get in a group project? Some of you are like, wow, I was that person, right? Totally unreliable. Right? Not trustworthy at all. You'd have this big project due at the end of the month, and they put you in groups. I always hated that, because I loved it when I got the straight A, you know, you know Sandy Pullen, you know, who, who had everything all set in order. I want to be on Sandy's team. I want to be in her group, because I know she's going to pull all the weight, and I can just sit back and be lazy. Right? We all love that group. But then as soon as you get put with a group of people where you're like, I, I don't trust you. You show up to class half the time. I don't even know if you're going to turn this thing in. I don't even know if you're going to do the work. And you get in that group, and you all get pieces of it. And what do you all say? You all say, okay, hey, let's all meet back Monday night, and all have our stuff ready, right? And as all of us are getting ready for Monday night, man, what's that? Where's that? Where's that anxiousness coming from? Tommy. Tommy, oh, he's going to show up. He's not going to have anything ready. Totally unprepared. Why do we give him that part of the project? That's like the, his weakest, weakest point. He's not even going to remember that. He's probably not even going to show up to the, he's probably going to forget it's even Monday night at eight. Like we, we just go through that. There's nothing more anxiety provoking or worry filling than you giving someone a request and them not being trustworthy right? Here's what's insane, and I do this. Solomon lays before us, God is in all this. God is in control of all this. These seasons and times of change will come, and you can either trust him or not, and we treat God like Tommy, and we give him requests, and we beg him and pray and hand him off, and then we are more anxious and more worried for weeks on end going, God, you get that? Did you get what I gave you? Did you take my request? Did you hear me? Are you going to follow through? Even though his track record is perfect. Even though you can look at Genesis 12 on and him say, hey, I'll fulfill every last promise. Look at the resurrection of my son. Everything is fulfilled in every bit of what I say. Look at every prophecy. Look at every statement. Look at every truth. Look at everything you've seen. I have demonstrated my trustworthiness, and we treat him like he's Tommy who might not show up on Monday night at 8 o'clock. And so our anxiety grows. And here is the issue with all this. Our confidence is not in his sovereign answering. It's in your finite asking. Your confidence is not in the character of God. Your confidence is in you wanting to be God. And so we play this game where we see these times and seasons of change. We see that God might make everything beautiful in this time, but we don't really believe him. We don't really trust him. And so for our lives' existence, instead of finding meaning and purpose and joy and peace, we're constantly rattled at the gate. And it's beautiful when we realize, and we're going to see more of this, that God is a God who says, trust me where we say, take it, you're in control. And Solomon knows this, and that's why he says, you're never gonna know it all, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's gonna be mystery in all that. And listen, part of mystery is the beauty that God put in your soul so you couldn't be God, so you'd have to trust him, right? If without faith, it's impossible to please God. Like there's something in your soul that has to have periods at the end of every sentence instead of question marks, and he's saying, no, question marks are good because they're causing you to constantly lean into me, discover more of my character and my love and my peace and my control and my sovereignty in your life, and that you are totally lacking, that you are totally not in control, and that you totally don't know everything, and you're the ambulance driver that wouldn't even show up if you want to do this over again. If you made the decisions, you'd make all the bad ones, you'd make all the wrong ones, your path would be totally crooked and not be made straight, yet I am doing all of that in my time for my good, pleasing will. And you got to trust me in this. And I know it's hard. And even through pain, you say, yes, God, uphold me, sustain me, 
Help me where I don't believe right. Help me where I need to understand you more accurately. What am I not believing or knowing about the character of how you've revealed yourself? That you're a God who always does good. And all of this, Solomon says, is what testifies to eternity being written on your hearts. He says, all of this is what naturally in the bottom of your soul should cause you this frustration you feel, this unrest you feel, that there's something not quite right, that everything's not really at rest for you, everything's not really at peace for you in your life, you're not getting what you think you deserve, you're not going to where you think you should go, you're not having what you think you should have. He goes, hey, all that unrest is to show you that you were made for perfection. You were actually designed and woven. Death was not supposed to be the end. Death was not supposed to be in the program, but you brought in death through your sin, you suffer consequences, but God through Jesus Christ will make all of that right. He will straighten it out. He will mend what has been broken. And so here we see every time we hit a hard moment or a hard season, verses one through eight, it should push you to realize eternity is written on my heart because this fracture can't be here. Like I know it was meant for perfection. That garden that you're trying to get back to existed before sin and will exist after the return of Jesus Christ that we will ultimately get there, but you won't get there on your own will and merits. You'll get there by the blood of Jesus Christ, who now forgives you of sin and mends what has been broken. Every time you get something that should make you happy and it runs out of steam, you know eternity is put in your heart. Every time you see someone digging a water well, you know eternity has been put in your heart. Every time you see us spending trillions of dollars to cure cancer, you know eternity has been written on your heart. Every time you see war in the Middle East and you see ISIS, you know that eternity has been written on your heart because you long for a place where injustice, sorrow, pain, and suffering do not exist. And what does exist is a world that is only heaven glorified with God in Jesus Christ. And so Solomon's just saying, hey, listen, all these seasons you're walking in and all these things you're experiencing is only a testament to that you've got eternity written in your heart. And some of us, and we went through all the different ways that people try to suppress that and d- deal with that, those are not sufficient ways. They just put band-aids on the, on the wound when we need internal surgery, which only Jesus does. So look at what he says in verse 14. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So Solomon, again, just reiterates the trustworthiness and sovereignty of God. And all that God does, he says, endures forever, right? Everything that God does is eternal. Everything that God does is deeply meaningful. Everything that God does will actually last and be sustainable. If it's tethered to God, nothing's in vain. And he shows us here that under God's sovereign rule and reign, this is to put fear in us before him. Now, this isn't bad fear. This is good fear. This is fear that should lead to life, not death. This is God reminding you sometimes more fiercely than you'd like him to that you're not in charge. That God does these things, that God is an authority of these things, and you are not. And as his kid, he loves you and wants to form and shape you. This is like with Jackson. I don't know if you guys have ever done stuff with your kids to kind of instill some fear in them so they would fear something that would actually save them ultimately. And give light, you guys never done that? I, okay, so maybe I'm a terrible dad, but here's what I do. Here's what I did. Um, and we're out playing soccer the other night, and there's the road, right? And we don't live on like a busy street, but I want him to be terrified of the street. So I'm like, because I know if he goes out there, I know the way cars whip down our street, even though we're in a cul-de-sac, I know the way they come through there, and they're young kids. And so we're kicking the ball, and there's no curb, there's no real block. So I say, Jackson, hey, Jackson, you know what, buddy? You know what could happen if you step in that street? A car could come. And it could smash you. And it could roll over you and flatten you like a pancake like this. Jackson goes, he's four, right? He's four. So he goes, right, daddy, I don't want to go on the street. That's right, stay close to daddy. 
That's right. Stay right along daddy's side, right? Daddy's here to protect you. Daddy. So, so, so there's times that we instill fear. We put fear before people because we want them to know, hey, we're good. We're for you. We want you to be protected. We want you to head towards life, not death. And God does all of this to say, hey, you don't have the throttle here. I do. But know that every bit of what I do for those in Christ is for their good. That ultimately, it is not to punish you or destroy you. Solomon is saying there's, there's a, a definite orderliness to everything that God does. Uh, one commentator said this. He said, his sovereignty has chronology. I love that, um, which is why Solomon's saying, hey, uh, it's for God to know. He said it in verse 11, and he says it again here. All of this is for God to know. There's mystery that's for God to know. Listen, most of our anxiety and anger and conflict in our life, almost all of it is birthed from us not being God and resenting that we're not him. Almost every bit, I'm talking about my own soul here, almost every bit of our anger, anxiety, and resentment in life and conflict in life is because we are bothered that we are not God and that he is, and that he knows things that we cannot know. We don't like that. We want to be him. And Solomon's just saying, you can't play God, you can't be God. You can try your whole life to do that, and it's not going to work out well for you. But here's the thing. God being God is such good news for us because it sets you free. <laughs> it actually frees you. I mean, that's why the message of the Scripture is that God is ultimately for God, that God ultimately does everything to the praise of his glorious grace, that he saves not just to comfort you and give you peace and forgiveness of sin, that ultimately he does everything that he does so that he would be worshipped, so that he would be glorified, so that he would be celebrated. He does everything that happens here ultimately so that God would remain God. Now here's why that frees us is, do you know how much conflict and anger and frustration is in your life because you think the world is totally about you. So in marriage, if marriage solely exists for you and not for God and not for his glory to be displayed, not for his character to be displayed, then your whole marriage will be, why are you not doing this for me? I deserve this. I'm owed this. You should do this. Why are you acting this way instead of being free to love that few taste when they realize that God is ultimately for God, that marriage is not ultimately about your happiness but holiness in God through Jesus Christ where you get to say, I'm free to love my spouse because they weren't gifted to me as a slave but a co-laborer not as a, this servant that just does things for me and wakes up as my bed and breakfast but somebody who actually has a soul who wants to cause me to love Jesus more who's going to show me flaws in me I didn't see were there before spaces that Jesus needs to work out kinks that need to be made straight because otherwise you know what you're living in a marriage that doesn't exist that might go well for a while, loses its steam, and hey, let's go. Let's try a new one. And I know there are, there's deep pain and deep realities here. I'm not undermining that. I'm not surpassing those things. But I am saying that we often need to ask, why am I feeling anger and rage here? Why am I feeling conflict? Why am I feeling anxiety? And almost every time it's because you want to be on the throne. And brothers and sisters, you'll never be on it, even in heaven. You'll be throwing your crowns before the one who is. The things we can't control with our kids, the things we can't control in life, things we can't control with our jobs, the things we can't, you weren't made to try to make those things right. You were made to enjoy more of God as he makes them right in his time and find joy in that. And look, I, I know that no one in here is is gonna say, I'm God, I wanna be God. Because we'd all be like, you're nuts, right? Like, no one's gonna say that, but you know what? We won't say it, but we'll live like that. We won't outright declare it, but we will live like it. People should serve me. People should do what I want them to do. This should happen. This shouldn't happen. Solomon's going, that's not a free way to live. There's no meaning in that. There's no purpose in that. So Solomon is not saying that you can do nothing about what happens. He's not saying that. He's just saying there is a divine fittingness to everything that happens. How encouraging is that? 
Now you got a, now you got a place to stand on. There's a, there's a divine author that's an active agent in everything. Man, I would much rather the chaos and fractures in life not be random and aimless, but be threaded and woven by a God who is for my ultimate good. I don't want to be left to chance. I would much rather have the character of a divine being who is after my joy, bound up in him, resolved it in his crucified son, has eternity waiting for me, as an adopted son, free from sin, free from a curse, living in perfect obedience without even having to, toiling but never working hard, never hungry but enjoying lavish meals, walking in a sin-free world and life with God, God with man. That's coming for me, and that's coming for those of us that know and love Jesus Christ. And so now we actually have meaning in our today that none of this is random. It's not chaotic. It's not by accident. God's weaving in all of this. And do we not see the fittingness of God's timing most clearly in his son, Jesus Christ? I mean, Jesus Christ is the quintessential verses one through eight. He literally embodies it. We just spent two years in Luke where we saw Jesus know exactly when to be born. People plotted to kill him for years and knew exactly when to die. We saw he knew when to embrace humble sinners and when to walk away from the proud. We saw when he knew what it was right to open his mouth and not keep quiet and preach the gospel and when it was time to be silent and be killed and crucified for sin. We saw when God genuinely loved like no other human being could love in Jesus Christ, and we saw him hate injustice rightly exactly when he was supposed to. There's only one man who lived who actually fulfills verses one through eight, who embodies the fittingness of time, and that's Jesus Christ. That in every season under heaven, the perfect time to do all those things was all bound up in the work of Jesus. And because he did that for us, he carries us through every one of those seasons. He's the one who shows us that the fittingness of God is always timely. He knew exactly when to weep over the tomb at Lazarus. And he knew exactly when to rejoice when his disciples returned from that first mission. He knew when the time was right and season was right. I want to end just leaning into Romans 8 together because I, 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 this week as I was studying, I almost saw Romans 8 as a literal echo of Ecclesiastes 3. So can we do that? Can we, can we stand in Romans 8 together? Not literally stand, but s- proverbially stand. And you're welcome to stand, but here, let me read this. And I know this is a, 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 a commonly known passage of Scripture Paul has been laying before us unbelievable truths, unbelievable um, realities before us that, man, there is a Holy Spirit's work in us that is destroying our sin, putting it to death, that we have future glory coming, that there is no condemnation in Christ, that no charge can be brought against anyone who is God's, that your salvation is sure, that you can stand in that, that you can walk in that, that there will be pain, plight, difficulty, suffering, but God will uphold you. And look at what he says in verse 28, and we're going to keep going Because all of us, just like 28, all things work together for good. For those who love him and for those who are called. Okay, so it keeps going. Okay, so verse 28, here's what we're going to see. Look at what Paul says, and I think this will really encourage you, and I hope it does, because it encouraged me deeply this week. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Okay, you know what's really good news about what Paul just said? What's really good news is Paul just said that Christian circumstances are no different and no better than anybody else's. Because for him to say, hey, God works all things together for good means, hey, Christian, all those things that you hate, all those seasons that you despise, all the pain, plight, and difficulty that you walk in, hey, he uses all of that for your good. He wouldn't need to say that if there was none of that. So right out of the gate, you can know the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Bad things happen to people who love God. 
pain happens to people who love God. And Paul says that every bit of that, every bit of that, that happens to you, Christian, loss, tears, pain, plight, difficulty, work together, ultimately for the totality of your good. But notice, Paul doesn't say things work together for good. He says God does. You ever notice that? God works them together for for your good. Things don't just randomly work out. It's not just one day, all of a sudden, hey, it just kind of worked the way it should. No, God weaves them. God is the active agent. God's the one who works all these things together for your good. They don't just magically work together on their own. He's the active agent over the sun working all this together. So if you are doing well, if you're in a good season, if your body is healthy, listen, that's not how it's just supposed to go. God's being kind to you. He's working it all for your good. If people love you, hug you, embrace you, despite you and all your flaws, it's not because people are just supposed to be loving, they're supposed to just hug you and hold you, it's because God decided to work that together for your good. See, listen, every bit of good that happens in your life is mercy from God. Like every good day you have is not deserved, it's not supposed to be there. Under the sun it should be fractured and miserable and disappointing and every bit of good that happens is because God is the active agent in that. When you realize that you do not deserve those things but that every bit of what goes well in your life is a miracle of grace, there is joy that few will taste and few will enjoy. And don't miss verse 29. God says he'll work together all the bad for our good in totality. What's that, Paul? What's the good? What is he working in me? What is this good that I want so badly? Don't miss verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. For years I read this verse and I subconsciously whited that out. I didn't mean to, I just missed it. He's saying, and that word conformed is metamorphous, that he's literally transforming you, changing you. Hear me, brother or sister in Jesus Christ, God is literally changing the very inner self of you into the very inner self of Jesus Christ through every bit of what he puts and governs in your life. Here's why that is such good news. Because some of us think Jesus suffered so that I wouldn't have to suffer. That Jesus went through agony, Jesus went through turmoil. Jesus did not suffer presently in this life, in his humanity, so that we would not suffer. He suffered so that when you and I suffer, you become more like him. That he literally is growing in you the very essence of the character of Jesus Christ in you through every bit of those things. Listen, the Christian passionately loves the character of Jesus Christ. I mean, to be a Christian means you see Jesus and you go, man, I just have to be like him. There's no one else like him. There's no one else who is as just and perfect and steadfast and comforting and courageous and holy. And the list goes infinitely on, right? We love it. So listen, brother or sister who is in a deep, dark day of the soul, every bit of that is not to punish you but form you. He wants to grow more courage in your soul than before that looks just like the courage you read about in his living son. He wants to grow up more holiness in you than you had yesterday. He wants to grow up more steadfastness in you than you were yesterday. He wants you to be more persevering and more rooted in him and more confident in him than you were yesterday. He wants to root you in every bit of the image of Jesus. He wants to grow that up in you. He wants the love of Christ to grow in you to where you love, where people go, how are you loving them like that? Why are you doing that? Why are you so selfless like that? Why are you so meek like that? Why are you so bold like that? Why? Because Christ is being formed in you literally. And here's what's awesome. He promised he'd do it. Verse 30. 
He did it before you were born, before you were a thought in anyone else's mind. It was a thought in his mind. He said, hey, he, who we foreknew, he predestined to do this. That, that your literal formation up in Christ was not happenstance, didn't just happen overnight, that he said, I'm going to do this. And notice the language. He goes, they are glorified. They are justified. This isn't something that will be done. It has been done. You can stand in that with unshakable assurance going, no, God is for me in this dark day because he's making me more like Jesus Christ. I mean, you know when you've walked through heartache and difficulty and plight, and listen, if you're young and you're like, ah, I've never really suffered, you will, but, but when you get there, right, when you get to those seasons and times, all of you can point, I hope and would say, as a blood-bought citizen of the kingdom, I can feel the inner workings of Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm, I'm tasting the things that Jesus tasted. I'm experiencing things that Jesus experienced. He's growing us up into the image of Christ. He promises to do this. Um, I thought it's a lot like, you know James 1, where he says, count it joy when, when trials of all kinds enter your life. And he says, uh, you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let that have its full effect so you can be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. I really believe that is pointing back to Romans 8. And going, this completeness, this forming up in Christ, only comes through that. You're not going to know what it's like to be conformed to the image of Christ if you never walk through a dark day. You're never going to know his mercy and grace and kindness. It's like you, you baking a cake. If you ever baked a cake, you know all those ingredients matter, right? What happens if you just put sugar in the oven? Just a pile of sugar that's burnt, right? Bring it out. No one's going to want to eat that. It's not, it's not complete. It's not lacking anything. Listen, but you would never eat the eggs on their own, right? Unless you're one of those weird muscle, build, muscle bodybuilders, right? Just eat the yolk. You're weird. But look, for the rest of you, you crack the egg. You never down that. Take the flour. Oh, you know, like, like suck the flour down. You choke, gag. No one would do that, right? But what happens? You put all those things together and let it cook for its right time. It's beautiful in its time, is it not? Is it not complete lacking in nothing? So in moments where we go, God, man, this tastes awful. God, how is this doing any good for me? You know that his goal is not you being free from pain. His goal is that you would be complete, lacking in nothing. His goal is that you would taste every bit of Jesus Christ that you can on your way to glory. And look at this. We'll end with this. He just stamps it with this ridiculous promise to ensure you know he'll do this and can trust him. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation. In other words, Paul's going, oh, did I find anything that I missed? Anything out there in your, in your resume or in your day or in your seasons, verses one through eight, anything that I missed, I rolled it all up. This is just the junk drawer of life. And guess what? Nothing nor anything else in all creation, just in case I missed it, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's because of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection that you can walk through every season of life and have meaning and have purpose because God has done it, because he goes after all that's been lost, because he evens out all that is crooked. There is no condemnation for those in Christ, and not only is there no condemnation, but nothing can separate you from Christ. Now, I'll tell you why this is good news. Um, growing up, I felt a little bit like I never got the whole story. Um, because I bought this idea that the picture of perfection was, I say the sinner's prayer, God, forgive me of my sin. I know I'm a sinner. I know you're holy. Amen, right? And then I thought, man, I'm going to love God, and then there will be no pain, no suffering, no trial. I thought love of God would just burst forth in my life. I thought every sin would be laid to waste. I thought everything would be working out for me like clockwork. You know what I learned? <laughs> it doesn't. But a pursuit of him a leaning into him, a chasing of him over time 
conforms me into the image of Jesus. I've been learning still as a young man that the gracious suffering of God that He puts before me and in me and through me is not punitive but formative, that He's conforming me, that He's making me into something that is not lacking anything, that will one day be fully completed in glory when we shall see Him, will be made just like Him. But for now, we see a bit dimly, right? Like as through a mirror. We don't understand it all, but one day it will be made clear. We only see in part, Paul says right now. And that was really good news to me. Because in those moments, what happens when you love the Lord and then you face deep pain and loss? What happens when you love God and He doesn't do any of the things that you want? What happens then? Praise God for Romans 8. No, 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 no. I haven't abandoned you. We're going to work through this. Don't buy the lies. Keep leaning into me. Keep trusting me. Keep hoping in me. Get around godly brothers and sisters that point you to truth and encourage you and uphold you. And Don't give up. Every bit of what you walk through matters. You're mine. I won't let you go. Isn't this tremendous? Seasons are no longer meaningless once you get over the sun. No season is meaningless. Whatever pain, loss, hurt, question, tears, confusion, whatever verse recited, whatever life that was taken, whether sin was confessed, none of it is in vain for those of us in Jesus Christ. None of it. God, God wastes nothing. He used wicked men like Herod to bring about his purpose to redeem a humanity for his own. He used betrayers like Judas in his hand to bring about redemption for his people. He uses all things for good. We have a God who uses every day, every minute, every opportunity, and he bends it all back towards his beautiful, perfect will. What season are you in currently, friend? What season are you in? I'm in a hard season right now. Are you in a difficult season? I don't don't mean woe is me. I just mean the real pangs of life have been nearer than they've ever been before as of late. The imperfections of this world have been ever nearer to me than they have as of late. The perfection and eternity that is written on my heart is much more obvious to me now than as of late. If you are in Christ, brother or sister, he is not punishing you. (laughs) He is forming you. And if you are not in Christ, you will be punished for your sin. And he has the right to do that because he is God and he is holy and you are not. But you can turn to Jesus, the only perfectly obedient man who ever lived, who was fully God and fully man, and took your sin and shame and everything with it and condemnation to the cross and said, I'll pay it in full and I'll rise from the dead, validating that I did it so you can walk in meaning in this life and have me. So you can be reconciled to me. So the eternity that is causing that unrest in your heart can be made right. You can understand it. You can understand why it's there. You know, we we should not pray against suffering. We should pray for steadfastness. He makes everything beautiful in his time. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you that you are a God who promises to make every bit of what has gone wrong, make it right and beautiful in its time. Father, even now the spaces where we are having a hard time trusting you. For some of us, this is fiercely personal. For others of us, maybe we are thinking about other things. Would you draw our attention to what is laid before us in your word? Would you lay before us the realities here, the seriousness of you, the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of meaning? God, for those in this room, I pray even right now in this moment, they would lay down at your feet things they need to say, God, I'm giving you these requests. I need to trust you. You're not the kid that shows up late or unprepared or who's not trustworthy. You're the God of all things. You made me. You gave me my brain. You gave me my DNA strands. You gave me my eyes. You gave me 
oxygen in my lungs. You gave me the heart that's beating right now as I'm even listening to this sermon. God, help me to trust the one who governs everything right now. Amidst all that I can't control, help me to lay it before you, give my petitions to you, and walk away as a free man or woman with hands up. Others of you who are walking in dark seasons and days right now, would you, and this might sound strange, thank God for them? Would you enjoy that aspect of life that is causing you to see the miracle of grace that forms you more into the image of Jesus? As work is really hard, as home life is really hard, as marriage is really hard, as the kids are really hard, as situations are really hard, would you thank him that, God, your predetermined plan for me wasn't just to make me happy and healthy and free from suffering, but to conform me, to metamorphosize me into the very essence of your son? God, those that need to repent of sin, would they repent of sin this morning? Would they realize they belittled your name, that they've tried to be God when only you can be God? They've pushed aside the eternity that continues to bubble up in their hearts. Would you bring them graciously to a place where they can repent of sin and trust you as Savior, King, Lord, and walk with you and lean into you, not so that everything would be made perfect, but so they would continue to know more of you and who you are and what you've done? Father, would you help us this morning as we observe the Lord's Supper? as we are nourished by remembering that you broke your body and shed your blood so that you could cure every season, so you give us meaning in every season, so that you alone could be the lens by which we view our life. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.